Thanks for joining SME's Build and Revitalize podcast series on the recent boom in the warehousing and logistics market. I'm your host, Allie Fry. Over the next few episodes, we will talk to business and community leaders about the trends in consumer shopping and how they've created a huge demand for distribution centers. We'll learn about ways communities, developers, contractors, and financial institutions are working together to quickly adapt to the boom and help owners creating facilities in the warehousing and logistics market. Well, we've come a long way in two episodes. Our last conversation with Kevin Hegg gave us a good understanding of how large distribution companies, like the Amazons of the world, choose locations for their warehousing and logistics centers, and some of the steps developers have to take to help them find that perfect fit. Today, we're looking at what it takes to actually build these large facilities. When single buildings approach a million square feet, there's a lot of construction challenges to consider. Our guest, Jason Salazar, is the Vice President of Estimating with Oliver Hatcher Construction, and he is no stranger to the challenges and the opportunities in this market. With 25 years of experience and millions and millions of square feet constructed, Jason has some great stories and great insights into constructing in the logistics and warehousing field. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we get into some questions, tell us a bit more about what you do with Oliver Hatcher. Sure. So I have been uh, in the construction industry for over 25 years. I have been with Oliver Hatcher for 22 years now. I have been with Oliver Hatcher mostly on the pre-construction side, although a lot of overlap in the operations. I've built over 20 million square feet of warehouse logistics space. I've renovated over 4 million square feet of warehouse logistics space as well. I'm a Michigan State grad from the construction management program. Oh, 24 million. That's quite a bit in only warehousing and logistics. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of experience in that market. So in that market, you know, there's been a lot of changes in the last year with the pandemic, with a lot of things going from more, even more so from brick and mortar to online. How has, have these changes impacted logistics and warehousing construction? Well, it, it's impacted the, uh, the market significantly and significantly for logistics and warehouse, just like any construction side. But the worldwide pandemic obviously affected everything that we do. Projects were shut down. Uh, projects were delayed. The labor shortage that was there before the pandemic even hit was you know, exacerbated through this whole process. Add to that the continuation of the uh, the larger e-commerce businesses, I'll say, that have carried on and carried throughout the whole pandemic. And you've got a situation where you've got material shortages, you've got material escalations, significant material escalations. In, in some instances, some of the markets have doubled in cost. Steel and lumber have increased significantly. And the labor shortages come become really difficult to deal with over the last few months. And those have made a significant impact in how it is to do the work. What we do is we're we're trying to be creative with what we do. Um, we're buying materials earlier, as early as we can, when we know we can. Uh, the market scarcity of materials is difficult to deal with, but getting ahead of it is important. Looking at alternate materials as well. Is there something else we could use that's more readily available that's not as cost prohibitive in this market? All things that we look at and all things that have impacted construction this year. 
And it's interesting that you say, hey, we're looking at alternate materials. What are some of those materials you've looked at as far as substitutions and what are the big ones that you had to substitute for? Well, we've, we've looked at um, uh, steel is really what we do a lot of with the warehouse and logistics buildings. And you can't really get away from steel, but um, what is more readily available from a, a material supplier standpoint, from the larger joist and deck manufacturers and what do they have readily available, what's further on down the line. And the other thing is really getting a slot with them and, and making sure that we have a spot available when our projects are due. And then looking, you know, at alternate materials, you know, we do a lot of precast looking at is a metal panel siding more available? Is it more cost effective these days? Uh, that has its own challenges in this market as well. So just keeping an eye out and, and, you know, turning over every stone that we can as we go. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have to be a lot more creative and a lot more creative in a very timely manner. You're almost changing on a dime, so to speak. So with all of these changes, we still see a lot of owners investing the time, money, and resources into logistics and warehousing development. Why do you think this kind of development is so important and people are investing so much into it? That's a great question. I think it's an important market because it's an evolving market with the e-commerce business in the world. And obviously the the situation with the pandemic, I think, is going to make it even more important for the uh, the logistics and warehouses. There's just a lot more online shopping, the less less of the brick and mortar stores that you talked about earlier. I, I can tell you, I see it at my house every week. I, I can't think of the last week that's gone by where I haven't seen a box show up. It's it's the the way the market is moving. It, it, from a construction guy standpoint, that's how I see it. I think with the pandemic, I think we're going to see more and more of this type of e-commerce business as opposed to the brick and mortar. Yeah. So many times these types of developments are being built or on urban brownfield sites, including old manufacturing plants. As you mentioned, 20 million square feet of new construction and 4 million square feet of redevelopment of existing structures. Can you tell us about some of the constructability challenges that this presents when you're looking at an old site? Sure, absolutely. We've done quite a bit of this work, as you mentioned. And as the name implies, a brownfield site is a, a, a formally built on site. So it's the reuse of a site adapting that site. And we always joke over here at Oliver Hatcher that once we get out of the ground and, and we go up with a building, everything's going to be all right. Um, that's just from the, the standpoint of, of being on a brownfield site, you just don't know what some of those issues are until you, you, you run into them, really. Many are contaminated. Many of them have older slabs still in place, buried foundations, buried pits, buried vaults. We've come across many, many different things that have been buried. We've come across bathrooms, complete bathrooms that have been buried steam vaults. We've had what I'll call really large basements in the order of magnitude of 30 to 40 feet deep, you know, hundred foot across. It's just massive basements. We even had a project where we, we came across a, uh, a metal grid buried in the parking lot that we were working on and didn't even know what it was. And through some back channels and, and some phone calls, um, at least we were told it was a low frequency grid. It was at the old Warren tank plant. And apparently they used it to communicate back in the, in the fifties, so you just never know what you're going to get with these old buildings, but um, or these old brownfield sites, I should say. So from a, a constructability standpoint, utilizing alternate construction methods important, looking at and evaluating all those, those methods, whether that's geopiers, uh, driven piles, shoring of old buildings and walls and things like that to maintain. 
taking a hard look at, at paving and concrete sections. What can we do with the concrete? What can we do with the paving? Do we need to thicken that section up? Do we need to use geogrid? Do we need to use a geofabric? And, and frequently and most often, these brownfield sites are classified as a facility, which means we can't readily take the material from the site off without paying large tipping fees for a class two landfill. So you've really got to reuse and, and be adaptable to the site and plan for and have a materials usage plan, whether that's crushing on-site materials and reusing it for ag base, adjusting your cut fills, adjusting your finished floor elevation, just to make the most use out of what you've got so that you can limit your exposure to those types of costs. Yeah, it sounds like even coming into these sites, if you know it's a brownfield site, you know there are likely going to be challenges that you can't readily see. How do you help plan for some of those challenges? That's a great question. And from a constructability standpoint, the, the way to stay on top of it is to be prepared, right? And you've got to be prepared for what you know. So you've got ALTA surveys, you've got geotechs, you've got drawings, you've got a set of documents you're working with. So you plan for what you know and you plan for what you can see. And you also have to plan for what you don't know and what you don't see from all the documents and information you have. So you've got to plan for that. You can plan for that by utilizing unit rates, by pricing this this workout and making sure that those that you're going to in the market understand what you've got, setting up contracts properly. So when you do run into these things, you have unit cost, unit rates, you have those things captured so that your, your owners and your developers know what kind of costs they're looking for or looking at rather. Frequently, owners will be looking at the brownfield site and looking for eligible costs. Uh, they'll have some um, TIF reimbursements to it. So from that perspective, you've got to um, You've got to make sure when you're budgeting and you're pricing, you're, you're breaking these costs out properly so they can capture those costs. Invoicing and paperwork is a big deal for that so that the um, paperwork that's going to the city, the state, the MEDC, whomever it's going to is, is properly documented. And then just careful on-site uh, recording and day-to-day activities are tracked properly so that you can manage all that. Yeah. In addition to the challenges you were talking about before, having to kind of change on a dime with your structural planning, it's a lot of other environmental and soils concerns there. It sounds like doing these types of development, especially in the day and age where you've got a high demand, is pretty challenging. When you have these challenges, I'm sure there are many others as well. Some of these facilities, in addition to having the environmental and soils challenges, are millions of square feet under roof. How do you begin to tackle a project that large? What's really key for the brownfield sites is obtaining as much information ahead of time as possible through the geotech environmental testing and being prepared, being as prepared as possible before even putting shovel in the ground and, and having a proper do care plan in place for the entire team is extremely important. And the entire team being the designers, the builders, the consultants and subcontractors and making sure everybody knows exactly what the plan is moving forward on these brownfield sites. So what about other construction challenges? You know, some of these facilities are millions of square feet under roof, and that doesn't even count all of the pavement. How do you tackle something that large? Again, proper planning is important. A lot of these buildings, as you said, are millions of square feet. Site work for that is key making sure that you've got it properly balanced, the cut fills are correct, you're fully utilizing on-site materials. It's just going to allow for the proper sequence of construction from that, that site work and to the foundations and to the steel and getting the roof on and, and getting the building enclosed and moving forward. Having a, a good understanding of all the geotech of 
all the design and uh, properly planning for all of that. So with your 25 years of experience, what's been one of your favorite projects and what's been one of your most challenging projects? Tell us a little bit about both. I don't know that I have a favorite. The most challenging projects would be my favorite projects. Uh, The more challenging, the better. Certainly have had some challenging projects in the past. Um, There's a couple that come to mind, one down in, in Detroit it was a uh, it was an old it was an old ice cream factory where they made ice cream that a, uh, an owner of ours was going to redevelop into actually a a solid milk product that's used in high end chocolates and um, that project had everything going on. We had uh, wild dogs, packs of wild dogs chasing our our superintendent. Uh, I recall walking the site with the owner a pre a pre construction walk, talking about what's going on in different areas and and just asking casually about the rats and how he deals with those. And, and he said, no, we don't oh, have rats. And one step further and a rat literally fell out of the <laughs> ceiling and hit the ground and scurried across the floor. Yeah. I just turned and looked at him and said, no rats. He said, that was a raccoon. And it was about the size of a raccoon, but it was definitely a rat. But we had hundred foot silos that we had to stand up, stainless steel silos, you know, in the, in the weather and the time of year was not, perfect for it. But those are the challenges. Those are those are the fun projects. Those are what make it uh, enjoyable. Um, we also had a project out in Warren at the, at the tank plant where we had all kinds of different things that we ran into. We had to demo a, an old stack, a uh, steam stack. I think it was 1908, circa 1908, something like that. And it was adjacent to a building we had to save. So it was very, very early in the morning on a Saturday morning when we we lit the fuse, so to speak, on that and watched it fall. And, and of course, it, it fell the right way and everything went fine. But in that moment where the explosive charge went off and it was just standing still for half a second, you, your heart's kind of in your throat. And you're not sure which way it's going to fall, because if it if it falls the wrong way, we've all got a problem. But, you know, th- those are the kind of projects that are great. It was it was a lot of fun. It was it was exciting. The design was changing constantly. Uh, this was the project where I told you before about the um, the, the metal grid in the ground that we found, which ended up being a low frequency, I guess what we were told was a low frequency mat that was used to communicate with submarines from Warren, Michigan. How interesting. Yeah, very interesting. But it, 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 that's those are the those are the projects that stick with me that I, I think that uh, are my favorites, the ones that have the most challenge with them. Absolutely. So we have a lot of communities and a lot of owners interested in this type of development. What's your best piece of advice for them if they're ready to attract a facility like this and have to do some of the work up front to get Oliver Hatcher involved and build a facility like this? Well, my first piece of advice would be to hire Oliver Hatcher. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then we'd bring SME on board, of course. Um, But my advice would be not to be afraid of of the size and the scale of it. These are just buildings like any other building on a much larger scale. They all kind of go together the same way. But biggest piece of advice I would give would be to hire the right team, hire the right designers, hire the right builder, the right consultants, the geotechs, the environmental consultants, and your team will keep you out of trouble. And, and that's why they're there. It's their specialty. Let, let those that know what they're doing do what they do and, and, and take their consultation and, and utilize it. So Jason, you talk a lot about using former brownfield sites, especially manufacturing facilities for these new logistics and warehousing developments. But a lot of times those facilities were made to run assembly lines, got a lot of oil and grease. They're just not made 
to house a lot of packages from Amazon or data. What are some of the challenges and strategies associated with redeveloping a manufacturing space and turning it into something new? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've, we've had a lot of uh, experience with that adaptive reuse of old industrial facilities. And, and it starts with the floor. So you're going to set racking on a floor and you need to have a flat, clean, as you noted, level floor. Frequently, these buildings had slopes to them. They had pits in them where they would collect lots of oils. They would collect shavings and, and the floors just weren't flat and they were not, how do I say this? They're not viable options for a warehouse or logistics. So frequently you have to go in and you have to understand what you've got, dive into whatever documents are available, see what you've got and plan accordingly. We've frequently gone in and saw cut large swaths of of concrete out in order to flatten the floor, filled in pits. We've actually filled in basements where where we've cut in holes into the floor so we could dump sand into the basement with dozers in the basement, compacting the material as we go up so that we could set material on the floor. Additionally, you've just got to make sure that it's high enough for a valuable logistics facility, meaning that you've got enough height that you can store enough product on the racks to make it usable. We've gone in uh, on 300,000 square feet, which was the largest roof raise at the time, uh, and raised a roof in Livonia, Michigan. I think it was about 15 to 18 feet, somewhere in between there, to make it a viable option. And, and when you do that, you know, you're affecting the fire protection, you're, fi- you're affecting all the conduit runs, you're affecting the lighting, you're affecting really all the MEP in the roof and the ceiling area. So you've got to account for all that along with all the structural modifications. And it's got to be the right building to allow for that type of thing. So there's a lot of research and, and there's a lot of investigation that happens in order to, to make sure that that's going to work for you. Jason, you mentioned earlier, you guys found a basement once that was about 30, 40 feet deep more than 100 feet long. How did you backfill something that large within a building to make it viable for construction? Well, you know, it's interesting. The basement that we filled in Lansing, Michigan, wasn't, it didn't need to be filled for a structural load capacity. The basement was designed for a manufacturing facility and they were running machinery over top of it and storing things on it. It was just the fact that the the tenant moving in there, their insurance company wouldn't allow for it. So we had to get in there and fill it. And, and we, we cut holes in the slab and, and we dumped sand, compactable sand in there. We had compactors in the hole. We had dozers in the hole. We had all kinds of testing going on. Uh, it was really quite the operation and it, it worked great. It really did. That was one of my early projects in my career. And um, it's one of those things that keep you up at night wondering how this is all going to come together. But again, going back to hiring the right team and the right people, it, it worked out just beautifully. You mentioned that the whole reason behind backfilling that area was it's a requirement of the owner or tenant's insurance. How often does that come up during construction for these logistics and warehousing projects? You know, um, this was a specific incident where we knew who the tenant was going to be beforehand. Frequently, the tenants come in and they're, they're taking the space as is. There's a lot of back and forth from an insurance standpoint when you're dealing with manufacturing and, and you've got different... FM and other insurance requirements. Uh, but from a logistics standpoint, typically you know, you're storing racks, whatever materials inside their product inside there. N- not so much an issue. That was kind of a one-off. Jason, we've talked about reusing brownfield spaces in urban areas, but there's a limit to the amount of land available. And if you're trying to build a s- several hundred thousand square foot warehousing, finding land can be tough. 
what are some alternate land sources that you've seen developers use? Yeah, we've we've talked about the auto plants and the challenges those bring, but um, frequently just due to the large areas that are required for these logistics and warehouse facilities in the urban area, there's just not a large swath of land available these days. So a lot of developers are getting creative with what they do. We've built on former horse tracks, uh, the Hazel Park horse track, Ladbert BRC down in Livonia, and, in, and landfill sites too. We've done a couple of landfill sites, which have a challenge all of their own. Uh, actually, we had a, um, a site in Hazel Park that was a former horse track that was built over a landfill. <laughs> it's a double whammy. Oh yeah, there was a double whammy. So uh, in, in, in industrial landfills, you just have to get creative with the material. Again, you can't really move the material offsite because it is a facility, because it is classified such. So you have to get creative with, with how you support your building. You have to get creative in using geopiers or using some sort of deep foundation. You have to investigate and, and work all the options for your developer. And you have to look at the site as a whole, too. You've got to obviously support the building, but there's going to be site constraints. You're going to be driving trucks over. You're going to be parking cars on it. What kind of section do you use from your asphalt, from your concrete? Uh, what kind of tolerances can you take? Taking all those things into, into consideration, looking at it, brownfield sites like that it, it turned out really, really well. And I think developers shouldn't be scared from those types of sites. And so you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of the same challenges that you would get at other brownfield sites, but I'm sure there's a lot of different ones that you get at landfills specifically. I imagine during construction and during site work itself can be challenging. So what are things you've seen? It definitely. And, and again, it goes back to having a, a proper due care plan having the, the geotech and the environmental consultants get together and provide a, a proper due care plan so that everybody knows exactly how you need to handle every situation. And again, it's that proper planning going ahead and, and looking at this thing before you put shovel on the ground and making sure you have the, the right plan and you have the right contingencies in place. Thanks for joining us today, Jason. Thanks, Hallie. It was a pleasure being here. You're listening to the Build and Revitalize podcast series on the warehousing and logistics market. Our next episode is a double feature. We have two guests to talk about financing projects in this marketplace. Brett Stunts with SME is our resident expert on Brownfield grant funding, as well as many other funds available to redevelop sites. And Chris Cook with MEDC helps Michigan-based companies find funding for their development projects. Be sure to subscribe to the Build and Revitalize podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Check out www.sme-usa.com slash podcasts to join the conversation, access show notes, and catch up on this series and many others. While you're at it, connect with SME USA on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.